You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. In high school, my youngest son was an all-county baseball player Mac went on to play college baseball, went on a scholarship, but Mac had always liked baseball. One day when he was four years old, he asked me if we could go to the ballpark and if we could hit some baseballs. I had a few loose ends to tie up at church that day. I thought it would take me only a couple of hours, but I promised him that when we got home, yes, we would go to the ballpark together. Well, as usual, at church that day, those couple of hours turned into six or seven. I didn't make it back home until late that afternoon, but I kept my promise. Mac and I drove up to the little league field for him to take some batting practice. We had a ton of fun. But later, Kathy told me that all day long, for those six hours, My son sat on the front porch with glove and bat in hand, waiting on his dad to fulfill that promise. A promise is a powerful motivator. Make a promise and you go to extraordinary lengths to keep it. Receive a promise and it infuses you with hope. It injects into you a surge of strength. A promise stretches your endurance. It fortifies your faith. A promise holds us in its grip. It motivates and comforts and produces endurance, especially when it comes from someone we really trust. Promises are powerful. In fact, you're here this week because of a promise. Some of you traveled long hours and over many miles because you have been gripped by strategic promises. You and I are locked in the gravitational pull of what Peter called exceedingly great and precious promises. You've been given special promises by a father that you trust unequivocally. Think of all that God has promised us. A home in heaven and help on earth. Streets of gold and power to be bold pearly gates and spiritual gifts, rest in our hearts in a nest in the stars, eternal perfection and present direction, forever fortune and daily provision. 
an incorruptible body for the future and a place in the body of Christ for the moment. Freedom one day from our rotting flesh and freedom today from all of our rotting tendencies. Victory in the last days over all our enemies and victory today over all our temptations. But most specifically, you and I as pastors and leaders have been drawn to this gathering because of one very special promise. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus made a promise to his disciples that we pastors quote weekly, if not daily. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is the promise that kept me fidgeting and squirming in the pew, chomping at the bit to play a part in the work that God is doing in the world today. I had no desire to be a pastor, even after becoming a Christian. I was just happy to be forgiven and know Jesus. But God personalized this promise to me. As far as I'm concerned, Jesus uttered his promise twice. Nearly 2,000 years ago by the springs there in Caesarea Philippi and in 1980 when he made planning a Calvary-style ministry in Atlanta, Georgia, the burning heart, desire of my heart. If I had a nickel for every time I've claimed this promise, I'd be richer than Bill Gates. So many times I've been pushed beyond my limits. So many times I've hit the wall and didn't know what to do next. So many times I felt alone as if no one understood what I was going through. So many times I wondered if God still intended to use me in this job. So many times I've been baffled trying to figure out why God had allowed this or he chose not to do that. So many times I've been exhausted and didn't know if I could carry on. So many times I've been bummed out after a poorly attended meeting and didn't know if I wanted to carry on. So many times I've looked at the meager progress we were making and I've wondered if all the effort was really worth it. And every time, without fail, I've found my answer in the very same place. In this exceedingly great and precious promise, for Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Over and over, I have returned to this promise. I found refuge and solace and comfort and hope and motivation. In this precious promise, it teaches us that the church is not ours to build. We should know that church work is God's work. The Lord Jesus builds his church. He builds a rugged and ready church so strong that not even the gates of hell can knock it down. It's not up to me, and it certainly doesn't depend on you. We have a promise that Jesus will build his church. And we're here this week because we believe in this promise. God has personalized this promise to us. And we want to emulate what we read here in Hebrews about the patriarch Abraham. Verse 15 tells us, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We too want to obtain that promise, do we not? But here's what I've learned about God's promises. There's often a delay in the giving of a promise and the obtaining of that promise. 
There's an in-between time. There's an in-the-meantime. And it's our attitude in the meantime that determines whether or not we'll obtain that promise. Once our family built a new house, we closed on our old house in May of that year, but our new house wasn't going to be finished until that September. And that meant for three months, our family of five had to live in my parents' basement. And it was torture. Kids bouncing off the walls, a wife with frazzled nerves. I had a basement full of unhappy campers that summer. All of us had to fight to keep the right attitude. And here's what I've discovered. A lot of life, a lot of church life is lived in the basement. It's lived out between the giving and the obtaining of God's promise. Boy, you can sow seeds for a solid church, but seldom do you reap in the same season that you sow. No matter where a church happens to be in its development, it's probably not where it needs to be. A foundation needs to be laid. Facilities need to be obtained or improved. Children's ministry needs to be cultivated or perhaps overhauled. Leadership needs to be fine-tuned. Staff positions need to be determined and filled. A missions involvement needs to be started. As a pastor, you're always in between the giving and the receiving of a promise. You're in the basement, so to speak. And to obtain God's promise with your faith and sanity intact, you have to keep the right attitude. After many years in the basement, our church has had a few years now where God has given us a taste of the promise. By His grace, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has been fruitful. We've seen lives transformed. The Lord has raised up volunteers and staff. We've had men go out to start other churches. We're making a difference. Oh, when the fulfillment of the promise is more tangible, it's easy to have a good attitude. Hey, you can point. Oh, look at that. God is good. Praise the Lord. But when the family is in the basement, it's tougher to stay upbeat. Here in Hebrews chapter 6, we're given the attitudes we need to inherit the promises of God. In between the sowing and the reaping of the promise, there are three attitudes that we all should possess. We need to be fully confident. We need to be similarly diligent. And we need to be positively patient. Fully confident, similarly diligent, and positively patient. Let's look closely at these three attitudes. First, the writer of Hebrews, he tells us to be fully confident. Verse 11 says that we've been given the full assurance of hope. In other words, a full assurance. You know, most pastors start out fully confident. You know, you have to be convinced that God is going to use you. Or why else would you leave a comfortable situation back home and move to a new community to start a church that no one's heard of and no one's even thought they needed? I mean, you have to be brimming with assurance to pioneer a new work in a new town. But what about after a few years? You see, this becomes the test. Once some water flows under the bridge and your idealism gets tempered with some realism after you've been hurt, after your wife has been hurt, 
after you've been oppressed and betrayed and opposed. Now that it's apparent thousands of people aren't going to flock to your grand opening, Pastor, are you still fully confident in the promise that God has burned in your heart? Hey, if you're going to make it as a Calvary Chapel pastor in this neck of the woods, you've got to remain fully confident in the vision and promise that God has given you. Notice verse 10 tells us, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. Doubt this truth about God and his grace for a second, and you're in mega trouble. And I've got to admit, I've doubted it at times. I've not always been fully confident of the truth of verse 10. My faith has struggled. Off and on, I've wondered if my work and labor of love had been forgotten by God. People and circumstances weren't falling into place for me as they had for other guys. I've questioned God's fairness. But I'm not the only one who's questioned God. Have you ever read the book of Job? For 38 chapters, that's all Job does is question God. He questions God's fairness. He questions God's faithfulness. Why has God made life so difficult, he asks. You know, I never really understood the book of Job until someone pointed out to me an interesting fact. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. (laughs) It's true. He never did. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book, its readers are told why this calamity came upon Job. But Job never got a hint. Job got caught in a cosmic showdown between God and Satan, like a proud papa. God was proud of his servant Job. But Satan scoffed and questioned Job's motive. He said, God, you're nothing more to Job than a meal ticket. He only serves you, God, for what he can get out of you. God agreed to let Satan harm Job because he believed even though Job would never learn why, his reactions would still bring God glory. See, Job believed in God. But what's more amazing about the story? God believed in Job. God was confident that Job served him out of an unselfish love, not for a self-centered gain. And here's the question. What if right now, somewhere in the halls of heaven, Satan is challenging God. He's saying, oh, that Calvary Chapel pastor, he's only out for himself, God. He wants a big church so he can be somebody. Watch how diligently he serves if only a handful of people show up. Oh, he doesn't serve you, God, because he loves you. It all just feeds his ego. Take away the pats on the back. Take away the outward successes, and he'll bail on his calling. What if right now Satan is before God saying that about you? Men, it could be possible that before your ministry ever counts on earth, it first needs to count in heaven. Faithfulness to the word of God, love for the people of God, integrity in your ministry affirms God's reputation in heaven long before it produces results here on earth. 
Here's the truth. You'll never obtain the promise and see that all that God plans to do if you don't remain fully confident. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. In the deserts of the west, out far west, there grows a unique plant. It's called the sensory plant. And it's huge. Six feet high, 12 feet in diameter. Its leaves are a foot wide. But what makes the sensory plant so unusual is its reproductive cycle. For 30 years, not quite a century, the sensory plant puts out no flowers. Then one year, without any real warning, a new bud sprouts. A stem begins to grow that buds at a rate of seven inches a day. It finally blossoms with gorgeous yellow blooms. And I believe that God created the century plant as a way to encourage pastors. The most glorious moments in ministry sometimes occur only after a long, long wait that feels like a century. We hold our ground firmly, patiently. Then suddenly God calls Causes the blossoms to bloom beautifully. The key, though, is to remain fully confident until the blessing comes. Too many believers give up right before the blessing shows up. Hey, remember, we've been given the full assurance of hope. God, God's promises never fail, so don't you bail. Persevere. Stick with it. Be fully confident. I love the old adage, the man of the hour spent many days and nights getting there. We forget the psalmist's prayer. Psalm 31, verse 15, it's our conference theme. My times are in your hands. But when God's timing isn't our timing, we need some perseverance. Have you ever heard the saying, a great oak was just a little nut that held its ground? We all can be a little nut. We need to be fully confident. But we also need to be similarly diligent. Read again verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish. We're to show the same diligence. I've always taken that to mean that I should show the same diligence in my ministry as my pastor Chuck Smith showed in his ministry. Chuck had the responsibility not only to thousands of folks who attended his church, but to the thousands of churches who looked to him for leadership. And I should show the same diligence in what God has called me to do as he demonstrated. The diligence God is expecting from any pastor is not in proportion to the size of your congregation, but to the value of each member and to the glory of God. Don't look at the size of your church and determine how diligent you should be. Sometimes a pastor is tempted to think, well, not much is happening right now, so I can slack off. No, what you need to be thinking is, look at all that God has promised. I need to be faithful. My eyes should always be on the next step. I need to rejoice ahead of time in what God has promised to do and prepare today for what he plans for tomorrow. 
The writer of Hebrews warns us to be diligent lest we become sluggish or lazy. When we're in between the sowing and the reaping, the in-between time, when we're in those hot, hazy, sweltering days of summer, and we're being called on to do the tedious work, the hoeing and the weeding and the watering, we can get lazy. We can take a few shortcuts. I think you'll find it's actually easier to set up a ministry than it is to keep up and stay vigilant. I'll never forget working on a sermon once, and I typed into my computer the word pastoring. P-A-S-T-O-R-I-N-G. Well, apparently Microsoft Word didn't recognize the term. And so the spell check marked it as misspelled and gave me three optional spellings. Pasturing, pestering, and posturing. And as as soon as I saw it on my screen, God spoke to me and said, Sandy, a lot of pastors are good at pestering. Some are always posturing, and many spend way too much time pasturing. You need to stay busy at the task of pastoring. I tell pastors, don't you quit your calling until you're as sure of your calling to go as you were of your calling to come. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Just because you don't see the tangible results you had expected doesn't mean God is not at work. How many pastors toss in the towel too early? Once a pastor, he stood before his congregation and he announced, he said, I wear two hearing aids, a partial plate, I walk with a cane and I have a pacemaker in my chest. It seems to me God's telling me I should retire. Later that morning, one of the church members corrected me. He said, Pastor, I think you've misinterpreted what God's been saying. He's not telling you to retire. He's telling you that if you keep going, he'll keep you patched up. (laughs) Here's what I've learned. I grew up hearing that Jesus would build his church. Church work is God's work. How many times have we heard, it's not by mine nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that wisdom has proven true. But here was my mistake. I expected God to do it all at once. And when he didn't, I got discouraged. I didn't know how to handle the in-between time. What I've learned since is that as you wait on God, you stay similarly diligent. You stay at it. You get better. You look for ways to improve yourself in your ministry. You work hard at becoming a better Bible teacher. You encourage the worship team to stay on pitch. You teach your Sunday school teachers how to teach. You do the best with the facility that you've got rather than complain about it. You look for ways to improve the ministry that God has given you. In other words, you don't take shortcuts. You stay diligent to your God-given calling. And you try to show the same diligence as others. You know, I used to sit back smugly, listen to other pastors and tell myself, well, I'm as good a Bible teacher as he is. 
It didn't matter that those other pastors I was listening to had thousands of folks coming to their church on Sunday morning. And I had to talk my wife into coming to church. (laughs) She preferred staying home listening to Bill Goodrich on the internet. I mean, talk about missing the obvious. At times, I was just plain proud. Thankfully, since then, I've changed my tune. Now I assume that everyone is better than me at everything. I've become determined to learn as much as I can so that I can be the best that I can be. I call it being similarly diligent. Did you hear about the dog who thought he was the speedster of the kennel? He was always boasting about how fast he was. That's why all the dogs were surprised the one day when this haughty hound took out after a rabbit and failed to catch him. When he returned, the other dogs were barking and howling at him. When the hound explained what had happened, he said, Guys, you've got to remember, that rabbit was running for his life. I was just running for dinner. And I see the same contrast in a lot of pastors. Some guys are running for their lives. Besides their relationship to God and their wife and their kids, their consuming desire is to build a church that glorifies God and reaches this world. But I've seen other pastors who are merely running for dinner. Their diligence was only true, was only faithful, as long as it was easy and convenient in their ministry. This is why a pastor needs some desperation. Years ago, the Chicago Bears were playing on Monday night football. I was watching. Walter Payton cut off tackle for a nice game when the announcer said, in his career, Walter Payton has now carried the football for over nine miles. His sidekick added, yep, and he's been knocked down every 4.6 yards. And that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? We glamorize a man's total yardage, but we forget how often he was knocked down accumulating those yards. My son Nick was a running back in his early years, and he was good, man, fast as lightning. He had this great cutback move. He'd cut across the grain and be gone in a heartbeat. He was a threat to go all the way every time he touched the ball. He took after his dad. Yet on occasion, Nick would take a hard lick, and he'd get timid, and he'd want to come out of the game. Again, he takes after his dad. And I'd have to tell him, son, shake it off. You'll never score if you don't keep toting the ball. I pity the Calvary Chapel pastor who comes to the Deep South with a nonchalant attitude. Oh, we'll just sort of throw up the shingle now and just see what happens. If circumstances fall together, if the money shows up, if a facility just opens up, then we'll stick with it. Hey, let me just save you the effort and the expense and tell you what's going to happen if that's your attitude. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing's going to happen. At least nothing of any eternal consequence. Coach Vince Lombardi used to tell his players, men, think of only three things. Your God, your family, and the Green Bay Packers. We too need to minister with an intensity. Ultimately, God does the work, but our part is to not stop trusting. 
Jesus will build his church. But in the meantime, we've got to be similarly diligent. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews tells us to be positively patient. It's a mixture of faith and patience that inherits the promises. What we need is a faith that's willing to work and a faith that's willing to wait. See, real faith can work or wait. To receive God's promises, it takes a blend of both faith and patience. Here's a great quote for you. Faith without patience yields presumption. Patience without faith yields pessimism. But faith combined with patience yields persistence. And it's persistence that obtains God's promises. For some pastors, faith is more the problem than patience. They're more willing to sit back than they are to step out. While for other pastors, the problem is more their patience or lack thereof than their faith. They're always on the move, even when they're not getting anywhere. Like the airplane pilot who radioed the tower. I have no idea where I am, but I'm making good time. Some of us lack the ability to wait on God's direction. It reminds me of the three women. They died and went to heaven. They were standing there outside the pearly gates when St. Peter approached them and he said that he had some pressing business that had just popped up and they would have to wait. Well, after a long, long time, Peter returned. He called the first gal into his office and he asked her, he said, were you bothered by the wait? She said, of course not. I've been looking forward to heaven for so long. I can't wait to see Jesus. No big deal. He said, great. I just have to ask you one question. Can you spell the word God? She answered, sure. Capital G-O-D. Peter said, great. Come on in. Then he called the next lady into his office and asked her if she'd been bothered by the long wait. She said, absolutely not, Peter. I've been a Christian for 50 years and I'll spend eternity here. It was no big deal. Don't worry about it. Peter had a question for her too. He said, can you spell God? She replied, yeah, capital G-O-D. He said, great, come on in. Finally, the third lady entered his office. Peter asked her if she'd been bugged by the wait. She said, absolutely I was. She said, all my life I've stood in line at the supermarket, at the movies, at the little league registrations. I resent having to wait in heaven. And Peter, I expected better out of you. Well, Peter responded and said, ma'am, that's okay. To get into heaven, though, you've got to answer one question. Can you spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? <laughs> My point is, is when it comes to inheriting God's promises, a lack of patience can pose a severe threat. Once the great preacher Phillips Brooks was found by a friend impatiently pacing back and forth, back and forth across the floor of his living room, his friend could read the frustration on Brooks's face. He asked him, he said, Philip, what's the problem? And Phillips Brooks replied, the trouble is that I am in a hurry and God is not. Isn't that our problem? This is why we need a positive patience. Oh, not the kind that sulks and broods and paces the floor, biding its time only because there's no other choice. 
No, we need the type of patience that uses the time we're called on to wait to prepare and learn and grow and get ready for the time we're called on to move. Waiting on God is part of Christianity's core curriculum. Before Moses delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, he had to wait 40 years in the wilderness. Paul was ready to preach the moment he got saved, but some waiting and preparation was first required. Even Jesus spent 30-odd years in obscurity before he began the mission for which he was sent. Some of us have a real weight problem, a W-A-I-T problem. Yet others of us have a real faith problem. Waiting is not the issue. We're always waiting. Even when God says move, we lack the courage to step out. Hey, learn a lesson from the impala. Not, not the car, but the antelope. An impala is an amazing animal. It's a leaper. It can jump 10 feet high and cover a distance of 30 feet in a single stride. Yet impalas are displayed in captivity in zoos behind three-foot-high stone walls. And the reason? The opaque wall keeps the animal enclosed because impalas won't jump if they can't see where their feet are going to land. That's called a lack of faith. Are you willing to jump only if you can see where your feet are going to land? This is the problem with many Christian leaders. There comes a time when every pastor has to pull the trigger on a major decision. And no matter the thought and scrutiny and wisdom that has gone into that decision, there still is an element of faith. Always remember, God often requires a leap of faith. We can't cross a canyon in two steps. We need patience but we also need faith. Notice the writer of Hebrews tells us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The proper blend of faith and patience is a delicate balance to strike. And it's best learned by watching and imitating good examples. You know, some lessons are better caught than taught, and faith is one of them. That's why the writer of Hebrews follows verse 12 with this marvelous example of Father Abraham. You remember Abraham and his wife Sarah struggled often to find the proper balance between faith and patience. While in Egypt, Abraham had a lapse of faith. When he saw that Pharaoh was interested in his wife, he feared for his life. He said that Sarah was his sister. Oh, he had patience, but he lacked faith to take a stand. Yet on another occasion, Abraham demonstrated faith, but no patience. Oh, he and Sarah believed God would give them the promised son despite their old age. But rather than wait and be patient and wait on God to work in his own time and in his own way, the impatient couple took matters into their own hands and presumed upon the will of God. Their servant girl, Hagar, went into Abraham's tent a maid And came out a mom. It was faith without patience. See, I believe the best way to capture the proper balance is to realize that faith and patience are actually the same attitude. See, faith is a trust in God that's willing to go. Patience is a trust in God 
that's willing to wait. But both are a reliance on God. And the key to keeping the proper balance is to build the proper trust. See, real faith is trust in God himself and in God's will, not the anticipated outcome that we've assumed is best for us. It's like the airplane pilot who wants to land. The tower may have him in a holding pattern, or he may be starting his descent, but either way, he's listening to the tower. He's taking his cues from the controller. Faith is a descent into action. Patience is the holding pattern of preparation, but both are the result and response of trust in the tower. And to properly pilot the plane, you've got to have both. The courage to go and the willingness to wait. Let me close with a story about David Livingstone, the trailblazing missionary into the African bush. One day a letter arrived in his camp from a British missionary organization. It read, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to send other men to join you. Livingston quickly grabbed a pen and responded. He said, if you have men who will come only if there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there's no road at all. God has called Calvary Chapel pastors in the south to plow a road where there has been no road. In one sense, the Calvary Chapel movement is as old as the New Testament. But in another sense, Calvary Chapel is a fresh, uncut, virgin road, especially in these parts. But it is a road that desperately needs to be cut. You see, I'm convinced that there are people in our communities that only a Calvary Chapel-style ministry can reach. And God has raised you up, Pastor, in order to reach them. Remember, We have exceedingly great and precious promises. A promise is a powerful motivation. Jesus says to you and me, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In the meantime, let's be fully confident. Let's be similarly diligent and let's be positively patient. For it is through faith and patience that we inherit God's promises. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.